in church history, there was never a time when babies were not baptized. In fact, I know today a lot of people talk about what is Reformed theology. What does it mean to be Reformed? And let me, let me make a, a statement that I think uh, will resonate with some of you. Some of you, I think it may be a little bit new. Uh, but to be Reformed does not mean that you adhere to the five points of Calvinism, although they're important. Uh, they're not at the top of the list of what it means to be Reformed. What it means to be Reformed, I think, uh, is very complicated. But one of the things that's definitely at the top of the cone, of what we call the cone of certainty about what it means to be Reformed is who you think the people of God are. Who are they? And how do you recognize those people? And the church, even before Christianity, in the Old Testament, the people of God always recognized uh, themselves as belonging to God, and they saw their children as also belonging to God. And so during the Reformation, it was only one small sect that chose to quit baptizing babies. And that one small sect uh, decided that uh, everything that the church had done for 1,500 years was wrong, uh, which I think is uh, overstating things quite a bit, but that everything that the church had done for 1,500 years was wrong, and therefore uh, we have to throw out everything and start over completely uh, fresh. Um, and uh, it, unfortunately, we lost a lot in that uh, action. John Calvin, in his Institute, starting on page 1324, uh, explains what it is to uh, what it means to baptize uh, children, and for 35 pages, 35 pages, and 31 excruciating points, uh, Calvin goes on in his Institutes to prove uh, the. Uh, the doctrine of infant baptism. Now, uh, I know a lot of people say, well, he's proving, it's only proving it to you Presbyterians and to some other people. He's certainly not proving it to me. And the fact of the matter is we can't prove a lot of things that are stated in the Bible. Uh, but I think that even though a majority of people in the world today, if you go globally, a majority of people in the world still baptize their babies, still recognize that infants of believers belong in the family of God, that they're not outside of the covenant blessings of God. Even though that's true, that is not the reason why we should do it. The only reason that we should baptize our babies is not because John Calvin said so, not because a pope said so, not because anyone says so, but because we believe it is taught uh, not implicitly, but explicitly in Scripture. And I believe that. I've taken ordination vows that uh, compel me to believe that. And so uh, we're going to read this passage of Scripture. It's in your bulletin. Uh, again, I read it earlier to uh, David and Mary as we baptized Nathan. Uh, but I'm going to read it again now. This is the very end of Peter's sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And this is the last little bit of it. I didn't really, I, I thought about reading the whole sermon, but just can't do it. There's not enough time. But in any case, uh, hear now the Word of God and uh, listen carefully as we, as we uh, read this passage again. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God uh, calls to Himself. This is the Word of the Lord. Peter, uh, on the day of Pentecost, uh, went out into the, to the street, uh, wherever they were in the temple area, and he preached a magnificent sermon. And I would encourage you, perhaps later today, to go read the entire sermon. Uh, we don't have time to do that, but what I want to do is give you a, a, an outline or a summary of the sermon that led up to this statement that he's making here and why it made so much sense to the people that were there listening. You see, there was a crowd, thousands of people, and these uh, 120 that had been in the upper room had been filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they started to speak in what is called glossolalia or other tongues. They began speaking in languages that were known, they were understandable languages to people from the regions from where they came, but they were not understandable to people who didn't understand that particular language. So the apostles and the other people with them are speaking in these languages. Uh, and speaking of the glories of God, in other words, it was comprehensible to those that could understand. And the crowds were coming together. There was all this excitement. They didn't know what it meant. What does this mean? And some people said, well, they're drunk and they're out of their minds. And other people said, no, it can't possibly be that they're drunk because it's early in the morning. Uh, who, who does that? Well, maybe they were Presbyterians, but they were drinking early in the morning. We don't know. But the, for the, the, nevertheless, there was a lot of confusion. And Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon and he said, these, these men uh, and people here are not drunk as you suppose. But what has come on them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he goes on to explain what that sign of the prophet Jonah signified. And so he starts out in his sermon, and here's the outline very quickly, talking about the sign or the end times had started. In other words, the restoration of all things was beginning on that day. On that day, because of what had happened to Jesus Christ and the reality of the resurrection, the, the end, of, end of the world as they knew it was coming to an end and a new world was being birthed, was being given birth. A new age had arisen. And so the end times, Peter identifies that end time with the phenomenon of speaking in these glossolalia, these other tongues. And very quickly, just a side note, a lot of scholars believe, and I agree with them, I think that they're exactly on track, that the sign of Jonah, the sign of these, these other tongues, this speaking, this prophesying in languages was a reversal of the curse that had come on mankind at the Tower of Babel. You see, at the Tower of Babel, people had the, the flood had just occurred. People had grown, you know, the population had grown back, and they were, they decided to rebel again. And they're building this tower to reach up to heaven, 
to proclaim their own glory, not the glory of God. And God came down and confused their language. And because of it, people were separated across the globe to this day. What separates people? Culture, language, things like that. That's what separates people. And the sign on that day was speaking in another tongue, but a language that everyone could understand. The people of those languages understood them and, and heard the glories of God. And so there was a reversal, if you will, if you want to agree with these scholars, a reversal of Babel, that the restoration of all things had begun on the day of Pentecost. So Peter begins his sermon with that. Then he talks in verses 22 through 23, he talks about the King Jesus. He said, this Jesus was commended to you. He came and He was made known to you. But you took Him and you crucified Him. Instead of honoring Him as the King, you killed Him. And then in verse 24 through 32, he says, but death could not hold Him. He was raised from the dead. And so he talks about the resurrection. And he talks about Jesus, the same one that was crucified, being raised from the dead and conquering death, hell, and the grave. Then he says in verse 33 through 36, this king who was raised from the dead has now been enthroned in heaven and all people everywhere will worship uh, him. And then in verse 37 through 39, he calls them to repentance. In other words, they were stung in their hearts by what they had done. They realized they had indeed been participatory in the death of their king, of their savior. And it says they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter, what do we do? What do we do? And he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. For the promise, listen, the promise is to you and your children. To you and your children. And in that one verse, Peter reaches back into the fabric of the Old Testament and he gathers literally dozens, perhaps hundreds of strands of truth from the Old Testament. He gathers them up and he brings them into the present in that one statement. The promise is to you and to your children. Repent and be baptized. For the promise is to you and your children. So let's, let's look at this very quickly. Uh, why, uh, why do we baptize uh, our babies? Well, let's look at it this way. What is the promise that Peter's talking about? The promise is to you and your children. What is that promise? Secondly, what does the promise, whatever that is, what does it communicate or confer to those who believe? What is it passing on to them? In other words, the water that we applied to this, this little baby this morning, to Nathan, the water is not magic. It did not regenerate him. It didn't cause something. But it was a sign of something. It pointed to something. It conferred something to him and to his parents. And if you believe the Westminster Confession of Faith, to each of you who have been baptized. You see, we're to recall our own baptism and think about what did it actually confer to me? What does baptism communicate to me? What does the sign mean? And then finally, who is the promise? What's the promise? What does it communicate or confer? 
And finally, who is the promise? What is the promise? The promise is to you and your children. Now, nobody raised their hand and said, wait a minute, Peter, what, what, are you, what promise are you talking about? They all understood. They all knew what the promise was. And if you go back in your Bible and you look at the promises that God has made, you find, like I said, hundreds of promises. But what is the promise? What is the promise? And I think it's something that we find very early in the book of Genesis, starting in the 12th chapter of Genesis, then again in the 15th chapter of Genesis, and then again finally in a magnificent passage in the 17th chapter of Genesis. And those of you that are familiar with your Bible know what I'm talking about. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, God appears to Abraham and tells him, look at the stars in the heavens. You see the stars? That's how many descendants you will have. He comes to him again in chapter 15, because Abraham is childless, and Abraham is getting old. He's, he's at this point, some, some scholars say 75 to 80 years old, and he still hadn't had a child. And he asks God in chapter 15, what are you going to give me? I don't even have a child. You've made all these promises. What are you going to give me? I have no child. And God says, look at the stars. Look at the sands. You're going to have children as many as these stars. And in chapter 15, Abraham believed God, it says. He believed Him in spite of everything. He believed Him and it was imputed to him as righteousness. And God made a covenant with Abraham on that day. And then years later, some scholars say as many as 25 years later, Abraham was 99 years old, he has a baby, Isaac. He has a child. And God comes to him a third time and he says, now I've given you the child and now we are going to perform a sacrament with this child, not only on the child, but all the people that belong to you, Abraham, everybody in your household, including the infant, Isaac, and we're going to circumcise that child, cutting off the foreskin of his flesh. And he says in 17, verse, chapter 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant. In other words, my promises to you are all going to be seen in this sign. The sign is going to hold everything I promise you. Not just the covenant, not just the descendants, not everything I promise to you from now on. All the promises of God are contained in that sign. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Here it is. Listen. To be a God to you and to your offspring after you. There it is, folks. Codified in just a few words. I will be a God to you. You will be my people. I will be your God. I want to ask you all a question. Every day, you pick up the news. Uh, we don't read newspapers too much, but maybe you open the internet, you listen to the news on the television or on the radio, 
And there are people all over the world who are killing each other, Christians and Jews and, and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs of all these religions in the world and people are killing each other and destroying one another. And do you realize that you and I, if God had not come into our life through the circumstances of our life, through our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, going back, how God knows how many generations, for some of you, you can, you can count the... I know how many generations it goes back into my family, into the Middle East. Hundreds of generations. Knowing God... Because He made Himself known to us. In other words, He owned us. I will be your God. He could have ignored you and left you to some other God. You could have belonged to... Think of this, folks. You could have belonged to another God. A different God. A God that kept you enslaved. A God that says to you, you for me, you do for me, you serve me, you obey me. You earn your way into my good graces. And if you don't, I will not accept you. Those are the religions of the world, folks, where the gods say to people, you want to be mine? You earn it. You earn it. But God in His grace and in His mercy, He comes to Abraham and He said, I will be a God to you. I will be your shield. I will be, in 15 years, I will be your exceedingly great reward. I will be for you. In other words, Judaism, ancient Judaism, and modern Christianity, authentic, historic Christianity at least, the God says, I will be for you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Where do you see that? Nowhere. That's the promise. Paul summarized it this way in Romans chapter 9 talking about the Israelites, talking about the Old Covenant people. He said, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the promises. You see, God came to Abraham and said, I will be your God and I will be the God of your children. He included Isaac and Ishmael both in his covenant to bless his children, that they would belong to him and that he would belong to them, uh, to him. So what does the promise communicate? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, it communicates a lot of things. I'm just going to mention two very quickly. First of all, an enduring relationship. I will be a God to you and to your children after you, and to their generations. In other words, forevermore. You know, I've had a lot of parents, I mean, my own children, my sons, both of my sons, were raised in the church, raised to be Christians, and yet they had struggles when they were teenagers, and they had crises of faith. And I remember going to our pastor in Florida. Both uh, Justin and Daniel had gone off the rails. We didn't know what in the world we were going to do. And we were heartbroken parents, blaming ourselves. It's our fault. It's our fault. And I remember going to Bob Ingram, one of our pastors at St. Paul's, and asking Bob, what, what do I do? What do we do? We do you know, we, we thought everything was going to be okay. We trained up our, child, our children in the way they should go, and now they've departed. And Bob said, you know, Chuck, God promised you 
that your children belong to Him. Do you believe the promise? And I said to Bob, well, you know, right now, no. <laughs> but if you help me a little bit, maybe I, you know, maybe I can believe it. And he said, well, you just, you, you go to God and you tell Him this. You promised. You promised. And that's all you need to say. You promised. My kids are off the rails, Lord. You promised. Now, which one of you fathers, today's Father's Day? Yes? If one of your children come to you and say, Father, Daddy, Father, you promised. Would, not, would you not move heaven and earth for that child? Yes? You promised. Would you not move heaven and earth? And I'll tell you what, He will. So I've had many parents come to me and their children are off the rails. What do I do? And I tell them, you go to God for the rest of your life if you have to, till the day you die. Let the last words that escape your lips before you die, you promised, bring them back. You promised. Because the promise is to you and your children. What does it confer? It confers an enduring relationship. In other words, God makes a promise to us. And to David and to Mary and to that little Nathan. He is absolutely beautiful, by the way. You need to see him. He's a very cute little baby. He made a promise of an enduring relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I won't do it. So despite whatever happens in our lives, and look, circumstances can go really haywire, folks. A lot of you know that. And when they do, you have got to cling to this promise, the promise of an enduring relationship which this rite, this ritual of baptism, a ritual that signifies death and resurrection and cleansing from sin. That ritual is signing something to you. It is saying something. It's communicating something to you. It is sealing something to you. It is promising. It's saying this promise is valid. If you will trust me, every Sunday, folks, in this church at Christ the King, the last thing I ask you before we go to the table, the last thing I say in my sermons is, will you trust Him? And that's the question that's before us every day of our lives. Will we trust Him? Will we trust Him? Is it easy to do? No. But it's the best thing you can do. Trust Him. And as Luther wrote in the mighty fortress, let goods and kindreds go this mortal life also. The body they may kill. Your word endures still. He promised. He promised an enduring relationship. And so whatever happens, Mary and, and David, whatever happens in the future, don't ever forget He promised. Those babies are His. He put His holy water on those babies. He cut them off from the world. That's what circumcision is. That's what baptism is. A cutting off, a putting to death the old and a raising up of the new. And He says, if you will trust Me for this, I will not fail you. You may fail. I will not fail Will you trust me? An enduring relationship for you and your children. 
throughout your generations forever. And secondly, an enduring presence. The Holy Spirit meant the presence of God. The ancient people knew that when God was present, life was good. They, it wouldn't matter how many armies came in. It wouldn't matter what kind of famine came. It wouldn't matter what disease came. It wouldn't matter whatever happened. As long as I have you, I have everything. They may take away every, They may take my land away. They, may, they can take my life away. The Apostle Paul said, whether I live or whether I die, I still belong to the Lord. In other words, Paul took the two extremes of human existence, whether I live or die. He said, the whole extreme of human existence, living and dying, I still belong to you. An enduring relationship and an enduring presence The Holy Spirit operative in the life of God's covenant people. His people, you and I. Why on on God's earth? Why would we say it's for us and not for our children? I dare you to think through that logically. Why would we ever say it's for us but not our kids? Not until they get to an age when they can decide whether or not they want to be God's person. God's people. Do you see how ludicrous that is? I will pour water on a thirsty ground. Listen to this. This is the presence of Holy Spirit, folks. I will pour water. What is the sign of the Holy Spirit? It is water. I will pour water on the thirsty land. Streams on the dry ground. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Restoration. New life. I will pour My Spirit upon your offspring. My blessing on your descendants. Your children shall be taught by the Lord. Great shall be the peace of your children. God's covenant promises, folks, have always included the children of those who believe. Never in the history of mankind were the children, until, until the Reformation and this sect, this particular sect that took children out of the equation, never in the history of mankind were children separated from their parents and put over here in this little package over here and said, they're not included. In fact, you can go to almost any place on planet Earth except America and nobody thinks like that. Everybody thinks These children are part of us. We are all one. Why we do it, I don't know, folks. But it's it's a, a blight on the Christian church not to believe that your children belong to God and to apply to them the sign and the seal of that ownership which is the water of holy baptism and nothing less. So let me, ask, uh, let me ask a few questions, and I'm sure maybe some of you have. Is faith necessary? Listen carefully. Is faith necessary to be included in the covenant? No. Lots of people are in the covenant that don't believe. The Old Testament was that way, and the New Testament is that way. There are people in churches today all over the United States, probably not at Christ the King, we wouldn't allow it. 
But there are people in churches who do not believe. And yet, they're still recognized as what? As Christians, with air quotes. They're Christians, but they don't believe. They don't even believe in God. But they're still categorized as Christians. So is faith necessary to be included in the covenant? No. People can be in the covenant and not have faith. Is faith necessary to be saved or regenerate? Yes. Of course, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith in, in, the, in formal theology, faith is what we call the instrumental cause of our salvation. Is faith always a crisis? You know, in America, we have, we have had several generations now where all salvation is crisis salvation. In other words, you're going along in your life and a crisis comes along and your life collapses, the wheels come off, and the next thing you know, you're on your knees and you're asking God to save you. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I came to the Lord in that way. But there's also another kind of regeneration, another kind of faith, not a crisis. It's, it's having children. What I prayed for Nathan this morning, that he would grow up and never know a day in his life that Jesus Christ was not his Lord. That there's no crisis. That he just grows up in faith like Timothy did, or like David did, or like Saul did, or any number of Old Testament saints who just, or, or New Testament saints who grew up being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to where they don't have to have a crisis of faith and a moment of salvation. They've always known the Lord. How great would that be to always have known Him and to be His? Does being in the covenant guarantee salvation? No, of course not. Some entered the promised land who were not saved, who were not believers. The Apostle Paul said, no one is a Jew merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. Not all who were descended from Jacob, Israel, not all who were descended belong to Israel. In other words, just your ethnicity cannot possibly convey or confer salvation. Any more than those of you parents who have a child can just say, okay, this kid's a Christian now. No, of course not. That child has to come to faith. Has to believe. That's the whole point of raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so they can believe. So they will believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God. Hearing the Word of God. Does baptism cause regeneration? No, I just finished saying that. Only the Holy Spirit causes regeneration. But, neither you nor I know when that moment is. And so our Westminster Confession rightly says that regeneration can happen years later after baptism or regeneration can happen the moment the baptism occurs. Yes? Just like David said, you knew me from my mother's womb. Jeremiah said, you knew me from my mother's womb. John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb and was filled with the Spirit even before he was born. How do you account for that? You account for it because God makes His promise and He chooses how and when and where we all come to faith in Him. So it's a sign. A sign 
points to something else. Baptism doesn't cause it, it points to something else. And a seal authenticates that promise and says, this is a real, it's like a notary stamping the paper and saying, this is authentic. This is a promise that has meaning. So why not just dedicate the baby? I mean, why all the fuss? Why all the fuss with the water and the sacrament and all this other? Why not just dedicate the baby? And I'll tell you why. It's not taught in Scripture. It's just not taught in Scripture. So why not baptize the baby anyway? Isn't it a good thing to do? And my answer to parents that have asked me that is, why not baptize the baby? Which includes dedication and so much more. Why make something up when you have something that Scripture teaches? Listen to what Matthew Henry said. Infants... Now, if infants were then, he's talking about the Old Covenant, the circumcision, if infants were then capable of receiving a seal of the covenant of grace, which proves that they were in the verge of the covenant, how then come they now be, to be cast out of the covenant and incapable of the seals? And by what severe sentence they were thus rejected and incapacitated? Those who say that are concerned to make out that not only reject but nullify and reproach the baptism of the seed of believers. Therefore, Matthew Henry goes on to say this, talking about bringing the little children to Jesus. Henry says this, Therefore, Jesus takes it ill of those who forbid the children to come to Him and exclude those whom He has received, who cast them out from the inheritance of the Lord and say you have no part in the Lord, and who forbid water that they should be baptized, who, if that promise, listen folks, if that promise be fulfilled, have received the Holy Spirit as well as we, for all we know. Or John Flavel, I will be a God to thee and to thy seed after thee is now effectually sealed to them and their children by baptism as if it were the former age of circumcision and that the Gentiles which yet were afar off, God shall call them and shall equally enjoy the same privileges both for themselves and their children. And finally, Sinclair Ferguson says this, the practice of infant baptism is confirmed in the apostolic tradition of a, a, a writing that was put together uh, by Hippolytus of Rome. And first, here's part of the liturgy for the little children. And first, the little children are to be baptized. And if he is able to speak, let him speak for himself. But if they are not able, let their parents speak on their behalf. So who is the promise, folks? The, the promise is to you. And the, who is the promise? See, the promise is not just a thing. The promise is a person. And that person is is Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry went on to say this, 
the self-condemned sinner need not perplex himself how righteousness may be found. You don't, have to, you don't have to get confused about how righteousness may be found. When we speak of looking upon Christ and feeding upon Him, it is not Christ in heaven. It is not Christ in the deep. What we mean is, it is Christ in the promise. The promise is this. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will come. I will be cut off for you. I'll be cut off. I'll be buried in the water of death. I'll go into the grave for you and as you. I will take your place on the cross. Your sins will become mine. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, He took our place. He was cut off. So you and your children never would be. Never. That's a promise. And that promise was sealed and signed in nothing less than the death of our Savior Jesus Christ in His blood. He was baptized into death itself. And His resurrection promises to you and your seed, I will be your God. You will be my people. Bring your babies. They belong to Jesus. Just like you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that You have chosen in Your in your wisdom of the ages, to include not only us, but our children in your covenant of grace. And we are so very grateful. It would have been unthinkable, Father, in the Old Testament to have excluded their little ones from the right of circumcision, from the right of ownership. These are mine, and you mark them. And we pray, Father, that as we observe this sacrament today for little Nathan, that this beautiful child would never know a day in his life that Jesus Christ is not his Lord and his Savior, and that he will grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We pray that for all our children, Father, whether they have strayed or whether they are close at hand. We pray that you will bring them to faith in Jesus as you promised, and we're trusting you. Please help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O Lord according to your grace. Amen.